Our Father, thanks for this day, for this opportunity to be here at your house, to study your word, to be challenged from it. Open our minds, our hearts to see what, uh, what you would have to show us here today. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to, to study about you. And I pray that uh, we would, as men and women that love you, that we would uh, grow in our knowledge of you and our appreciation of you. It's all about you, not about us. And we just thank you for this opportunity again in Christ's name. Amen. Today we're, now you might not have, um, we found out we might not have all the handouts here, so don't worry about it, because next week we'll give you a complete updated set of the handouts if you don't have them. Um, but what we have here is, uh, we're going to start with the faithfulness of God. We'll talk about God's faithfulness. And if you remember last week, well, week before last actually, we talked about God's truthfulness. And the concept behind God's truthfulness is God will never lie. He will never lead you astray. He will never deceive you. God is not someone who plays games with us. God wants to reveal himself to us much worse than we want to know him. His desire is that we know him. So he's not going to play celestial hide-and-seek. He's not going to try and hide what he is from us. Um, Of course, that means that we really want to find out who he is. I mean, God does not play games with people who do not want to know what he is like. But if you're serious about knowing who God is and serious knowing about God and seriously want to understand who he is, God will go out of his way to reveal himself to you because he wants to. And the only source that we have to know what God is really like is himself. He is truth. So you're not going to find out about God anywhere other than God himself. If you go anyplace else, it's a crapshoot as to whether you're going to get the truth or not. And most likely, you're not going to get it. Satan is not going to give you the truth. He's a liar. Remember? Satan is a liar and the father of it. So Satan is never going to tell you the true story. He's always going to shade it. God is the source of truth. And, and faithfulness is closely related to God's truthfulness. The idea here is God will never let anybody down. And I often, you know, it's interesting when sometimes people find themselves in a trial, their immediate worry is, uh, where's God in this? Um, where is God at? God's not moved. God's there. And in 6,000 years of human history, if you go back all the way to the beginning, God's not let anybody down. God's not ever let one of his children down. He's never been unfaithful once. So he's, you, what makes you think, or what makes us think, he's going to start with us. He's never let anybody down. And even though I certainly understand that, when you talk, you're witnessing to people who don't know the Lord, and, you know, immediately they bring up all the atrocities that are going on in the world, and the starvation, and the, you know, et cetera, all the problems, and... Um, there's evil in the world because there's evil in the world. We live in a fallen creation. And because we live in a fallen creation, you have tornadoes, you have starvation, you have famines. That's part of the curse. Um, what God has done, though, is he's reversed the curse in the, in the case of his children. Now, does that mean that life is going to be a bed of roses to us? Absolutely not. One of the great lies that you are given on TV by a lot of these wealth and health and prosperity preachers is that being a Christian exempts you from the trials of life. It does not. What it does exempt you from is the eternal consequences. Remember what Job said, though, he slay me, yet will I trust him. And sometimes that's hard to do. But we've got to go back on the understanding that God is faithful and he will not let us down. So if it appears as though he's faithful, the problem is not with God. The problem is with my perception of God. Yeah, that, um, actually, playing on what you had said, uh, I, I heard a, an apologist actually do a really interesting thing. That He was saying, you know, we can't even recognize the existence of evil without first recognizing the existence of a God. And so he actually put, he puts it up as if, as if it's point. And he says, so that's, okay, that's point on our side because you can't even, you know, you can't even say anything. And then he actually talks about any kind of suffering in the world actually is in some sense a, a death. And he explains how, you know, really the big thing is death is that ultimate suffering that everybody is really upset about. We're upset about children dying. We're upset about disease causing or, or tornadoes killing people. And so he said, okay, he says, but by definition, the resurrection has beaten death, and that's what God did in it. So he actually goes through this process, and, and if you actually take 
take the person through point by point, um, the problem of evil is actually not even a problem at all. It's, it's something that is already beaten. Now, its full effect is not taken, taken in, but we, the problem of evil actually works out really good for the believer to be able to give, give an argument to the existence and, of God. And quite honestly, Christianity is the only worldview, biblical Christianity is the only worldview that has within it the elimination of ultimate evil. We win, ultimately. Now, it's a mess while we're getting there, but ultimately there is hope. Ultimately there is a resurrection. Ultimately there is an eternal heaven that we will be in. Um, and in spite of the mess of this life, when we get there, you know, I often said, you know, I think the reason that God brings all of us through this life is so that when we get to heaven there will be an appreciation for our salvation that we will not have had we not faced what we face in this life. There's an appreciation for it because we will understand God's love and faithfulness. And God is faithful. God's not going to let anybody down. God's not going to fail us. The, it's more of a danger of us failing Him, right? <laughs> it's not of Him failing us. And, and quite honestly, let's stop and think about it. Even if, even if we go to the death for our, for our Lord, even though we're martyred for Him, do we lose? No, we win, right? <laughs> Who wants to be down here when you can be in heaven with God? Who wants to be here? So we got, the, the thing is we got to recalibrate our priorities and understand from the eternal perspective God is overworking His plan and God's not going to let any one of His people down. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Folks, we are the called. Every, every trial, every problem, every bump along the road, God is using to, to uh, make us better, to, to work His eternal purpose in us. And when we start seeing that and we start cooperating with God, it's amazing the spiritual growth and the understanding that you have. You don't need to be freaked out by what's going on in life. God is faithful. Yes, sir? How do we come up with 6,000 years of human You go back to Adam. I'm a, I'm a young earth person. I do not believe in an old earth. Theory. We're going to go get to that in a later part of the course. But uh, we've not been around for millions of years. We did not evolve from apes and ooze and goo gooey stuff in the pond or anything like that. Um, I don't know exactly when the date was, but somewhere around six, 7,000 years ago, I believe God created Adam and Eve, and that's when human history started. So. And the 6,000 years, when we, if we trace back the genealogy in the scripture, that's kind of the rough estimate that we get. Um, you could, the argument has been made that, well, it doesn't cover every generation, and you could say that, um, that possibly, you know, because we, we essentially say 40 years per generation, that's kind of the generalized, and if we just kind of trace it back, but, uh, and some say, well, you know, we'll say so-and-so is the father of so-and-so, when maybe it was their grandchild, but we still, 6,000 years is pretty, still a pretty good general yeah, that's a... estimate. You can say 6 to 10, um, but it's kind of, no matter what you say, if you're saying under a million, you're, you're shaking, you're rattling people's cages. Yeah. Part of the point. Yeah. Yes, sir. Romans eight eighteen for I consider the suffering of the present time are not worthy of the comparison of glory that is built up. Yes. Basically, the same thing we've been talking about, where you know we can never understand God's faithfulness, but we know it's there, and no matter how much we suffer, His His omnipotence is beyond us. Five minutes in heaven. You're going to forget all about the suffering you've done in this life. It's going to be nothing. It's going to be nothing. Our problem is we look at this life. And what we need to do is we need to break ourselves out of looking at this life only and start seeing things from the eternal perspective. Five minutes in heaven, it isn't going to matter what we went through in this life because of the glory that will be revealed. And, and we're not going to, you know, a thousand years from now, a million years from now, none of us will be having this conversation. Because the glories of heaven will so far outweigh any of the trouble, any of the trials, any of the garbage we've gone through in this life that it's not worthy to even be talked about. It's not going to even cross our mind in heaven. Yeah. yeah. Just one more thing about the question uh, the gentleman asked about the 6,000 years. One thing that I've always, not always, but in the last 10, 15, I don't know, 20 years, I have come to realize that geology, when measuring a tree, can determine by its rings, for instance, or a rock can determine, etc., as to the age of, okay, 
So the first day, or the first time, whatever day it was, where vegetation was created, right? Right. If there had been a geologist there to measure, it would appear as though that newly created tree was really X number of years old, or the yeah. the, the, God created. the grounds was X. So already to start with geology as a measurement or other means of measure, other sciences as well, you get immediately thrown off because you're trying to discount creation. Well, maybe you're not trying to, but if you are, then you could quote-unquote, successfully do so. Yeah. Um, a good book to read on this, we won't get into it now, but a good book to read is The Battle for the Beginning by John MacArthur, where he goes through the first uh, 11 chapters of Genesis, basically. And uh, some excellent work there that will help understand the young earth. I mean, either the point I really, really, folks, what it came down to me is I believe the Bible or I believe my physics professor. i got to make a choice. All right? I believe the Bible. All right. I believe the I believe what the Word of God says. I go with it. All right. Um, and by the way, faith, God's faithfulness intersects with His eternal security. Why is that? God faith. God saved you, right? Is He going to let you down along the way? God saved you. Is He going to somehow fail to bring you to eternal glory? I don't think so. You want a good passage on that? Look at Romans eight twenty nine through thirty where it links eternity past with eternity future, and it basically said that God's ordained not your salvation, but your glorification. Therefore, when God looked at Alan before time began, God saw me as glorified with him in eternity future. My salvation is a step along the way, but the end product is me glorified with him in heaven. He's not going to let me down. He's not going to fail me. God will never fail one of his children. Never. And we need to go back on the... And by the way... Just so, um, another perspective on this. Go look at the Psalms. Start reading through the book of Psalms. And what you find there is, you, in many of the Psalms, you find David starting out, he's in a funk. You know, he's being chased by Saul. He's in a cave somewhere. He's just, you know, the guy's almost a mental wreck. You know, it's like he needs therapy. And then what he does is he starts talking about, well, you know, Lord, I remember when you delivered me in, from this situation. And then I, I remember your faithfulness over here. And I remember what you did to me um, back then, how you brought me through this. And what you find is as David recounts God's faithfulness in his life, his depression goes away. Folks, focus on God's faithfulness in your life. Focus on his carrying you through because he has. He will never let you down. God's love. People say, I want to get to this. God's love. The Bible says, if anything about God, God is love. Now, one thing we have to make sure of here when we talk about this is there's a lot of people are going around today saying this is the number one major um, attribute of God that trumps everything else. What do you know about God's attributes? If you learn anything in this class, what do you know about his attributes? What are they? They're equal and they're all in balance with one another. One attribute does not trump another attribute. Alright? We've got to be careful with that. One attribute of God does not trump another attribute. And if you get into the point where you're going to say that the love of God is a trump attribute that, that sort of um, overrides every other attribute, you're going to wind up into a lot of theological heresy. And I talked about a couple of those last week, or a couple weeks ago. The, the whole free grace thing. If you dare God to save you, He will, and it doesn't matter how you live because you're going to heaven. Don't believe that stuff. The God that saves you transforms you. He makes you a new creation in Christ. You're not the same old person. You don't have the same appetites. You don't have the same attitudes. And there are people I know that say, well, I remember when I was a little child, I went forward and I signed a card and I prayed a prayer. And then you look at their life and they've not been in church in 30 years. They hate God. They don't want to go to, with, to the church. They don't read their Bible. They have no interest in spiritual things. But yet they're convinced that they're going to heaven because at some point in the past they signed a card. Folks, that doesn't mean squat. What means something is that you are transformed. You're changed. God's love will change you, will transform you. It will make you different. And you will have a love for God. That doesn't mean you have a perfect love for God because none of us in here do that, right? I wish I had a perfect love for God. I don't. <laughs> I fail Him a lot. But I care. I want to love Him. I want to do the right thing. I have a desire for spiritual things. I love being around Christians. I love being around the people of God in the church of God. I love that. 
And God's love has, has, and really what is, that's a reflection of God's love, right? The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 5. What is God love? Now, by the way, God's love here, you've got to understand about it, it's not dependent on the response of the one being loved, right? That's the, that's the Hollywood love. I'll love you if you love me. That's what you get in Hollywood. That's not the kind of love that we're talking about here. God's love is a decision. God did not sit in heaven having goosebumps when, he, when your name comes up. Alright? That's not the way it works. God's love is a decision. And God's love is evidenced by what? What did he do? How do we know God loved us? Gave us his son. God so loved the world. First verse you ever learned, hopefully. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. By the way, if somebody loves you, what is, how do they express that love? They give you stuff, right? I love my wife, so I give her stuff. Alright? That's part of love. If you love someone, the, the natural expression of love is giving. God loved us, so what did he do? He gave us his son. To take our place on the cross. To pay the penalty for our sin. That's what he did. God is not up in heaven getting goosebumps when he thinks about us. God's love is expressed in his actions. And God loved the world so much that he sent Christ to die for the sins of the world. That's how God loved us. And by the way, John says this. First John, we love him because he first loved us. Who took the initiative? God did. Now, people say, well, you know, know, such and so a person, they're seeking God, are they? Does anybody, does any natural, human, pagan person, are they, is anybody seeking God? No. No. Where do you, well, you know that because you've been in my classes. (laughs) And, And by the way, I'm just reiterating what Paul says in Romans 3, right? None seek after God. What do people want? What are they seeking? Joy, comfort, something selfish for them. They want, they want fulfillment. They want a good feeling. You know, they want their guilt assuaged or something. Nobody seeks God for who God is. They seek God for what He gives, but not for who He is. God has to take the initiative. Okay. In the Old Testament, Isaiah, I think, Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. On the other hand, New Testament, Jesus, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Right. What is Isaiah, the question is, who is Isaiah talking to? God, Isaiah is talking to the people of God who already know about him. And they're told to seek him. Am I to seek God's will in my life? Am I to seek for a deeper relationship with God? But why am I seeking that? Because he first found me. Does that make any sense? As a believer, I'm seeking God. I seek His will. I seek His desires. I seek a relationship with Him. But the reason I seek that is because He's already sought me and found me. If He had not found me, if I was the average pagan out there, I'm looking for fulfillment, for joy, for happiness, for peace, for something. But I'm not looking for God because Romans says no one seeks after God. They're all gone out of the way. The word form there is a sheep that's out in the desert wandering around in circles. Now, if you want to look at that, look at the TV talk shows. Everybody's wandering around. Nobody knows where they're headed. I seek God because he sought and found me. I love God because he loved me. And Christ said the shepherd, the good shepherd, what does he do? He lays down his life for the sheep. God's greatest expression of love, folks, the greatest expression of love in the universe is God dying for me and you. That's the greatest expression of love possible. The greatest sacrifice. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And by the way, what does Romans 5 tell us? God did not, did God lay down his life for his friends? He laid down his life for his enemies. Yes, sir. Like cocaine to keep going, 
good integrity, strength, dominance. So they take the drug to feel that. And to me, people sort of go, those people are the best people, but if they were the best people, they would have no need for that substance, what they're claiming to. And I, when you sit there and look at, as a Christian, what you receive from God, is it not the same thing as a drug? In the sense of, there is no ill effects to You sit there and look, I have someone loves me no matter what I do, what I have done, what I will do, and knows and forgives everything. And he's pushing me to be successful. You're looking at the power of this drug that these other people see and admire and use to kind of get to where they are. Yet as a Christian, we seem to forget that we have the most powerful, strongest drug in the world in a book, but it's a living essence, spirit that's out there living in us. Mm-hmm. We have that as part of us. So why aren't we feeling that same strength and integrity in any situation we're put to test before when we know that we have got there? One of the things that I've been grasping with my own life is just how much God loves me and realizing that nothing I do makes him love me more than he does. Now, that doesn't mean I can't experience that love more, right? There's an experience of it. How do I experience God's love? How do I experience his presence? Well, it's only as, in as much as I am holy that I am dealing with sin in my life. Listen, if I love God, think about this. If you love someone, what do you love? You love the things that they love, right? If you love God, what should you love? You should love the things that God loves, right? And here's another question. If you love someone, do you consciously do things that you know will hurt them and make them feel bad? I hope not. I love my wife, therefore I want to do things that make her happy. I don't want to do things that make her sad. I want to do things that make her happy. So if we love God, what do we want to do? We want to do those things that brings joy to God's heart. And what is it, what is it that brings joy to God's heart? Obedience. Love. And when, when I appreciate Him and when I talk to Him, when I share my life with Him, the spiritual discipline, spending time with God, that's how you love God. And, and one of the things that I've been... And see, when you do that, the rule book goes away. You don't need a list of rules and regulations and, okay, if I don't go to church today, I'm sinning. Where do you get that? If you love God, you're going to want to be here. Now, there may be things that come up that you can't be here, but if you love God, you don't need the rule book. You don't need the regulations. You don't need the list. Love God. And when you start loving God, you're going to, be, you're going to find that you're going to start loving the things that He loves. You're going to start hating the things that He hates. And therefore, as a Christian, when you find yourself engaging in sin and it hits you that, wait a minute, I am hurting, I am grieving God, you want to run from that. You want to get away from that because you love God so much, you don't want to do anything that would cause him to have grief or sorrow. And that's when your spiritual life takes on a whole new dimension, a whole new level. Love God. But we love him because he first loved us. We already talked about this. God's love was best expressed in what? His gift. Himself. He died in my place. He took the penalty that was due me. Substitution. Instead of God's wrath falling on me like it should, God's wrath fall on whom? Christ. And he took my full, unmixed cup of wrath and drank it all the way to the bottom so that I could be forgiven. Now, who, who could not respond to someone who loves you like that? Who's willing to go to that length to save us? And when we get our heads around that, it will, it will really help us understand and appreciate God's love for us. Along with God's love is God's goodness, goodness, His benevolence. Now, there's a sense in which God generally loves the world, right? In a general sense. And how do you know that? Because sinners are still walking around, right? <laughs> I mean, if God did the right, just thing, what would happen to every sinner on the planet? Poof. All right? And remember what it says, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. All right? There's a sense which, in which there's a general benevolence of God towards his creation and that he does not exact the penalty for sin that he should. He, he allows it to go on. There's a goodness. God is good. And, and besides, not only would he have to zap all those who 
Yeah, and in fact, that's what Peter says. When, you know, one of the things in Malachi, um, or Malachi if you're an Italian, um, at the end of the Old Testament, is uh, in there you see um, some of the people wondering when God's going to show up and judge sin. And Malachi says, you know, you don't want to be too quick about that, because when God shows up to begin judging, where does he start? The house of God. With the house of God, and works his way outward. Folks, we need to, we need to have that little idea, concept in the back of our head. Peter says that also in First Peter. Judgment must first begin where? At the house of God. And it's easy for us to say, God, God, judge him, judge him, judge him. And God's saying, you know, I have some things about you too that we need to work on. And don't be too quick to want God to come in judgment because he's going to start with you. But God's goodness refers to just God's general benevolence to us. Think about how good God is to us. You know, I think one of the greatest sins, one of the greatest sins that we as uh, Christians can make is to not be appreciative of what God has done for us. Now, we look around and say, well, I'm not driving a new car. Well, you, you might be driving a car. You know, that's, that's a step up above many other people. Um, I don't have this amount of money. Well, you're not poor, right? Well, quite honestly, when you look at us and the rest of the world, the poorest person in here is infinitely richer than many people in the world. You're ahead of five or six billion other people on this planet. And when you look at your health, you know, you say, well, you know, I've got to wear glasses. Yeah, but I can walk. That's something, right? There are people that can't walk. There are people that can't see or can't hear or whatever. Look, folks, I, I love that song. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what God has done. Instead of looking at what we don't have, what God has not done, let's look at what God has done. And let's develop and engender within our spirits and our souls an appreciation for Him. And what did Paul say? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's be content with what God has given us. I often pray, Lord, help me to be content with the portion that you've granted me. Now, I don't want somebody else's money. I don't want somebody else's stuff. I just want to appreciate what you have given me, be a good steward of it. And if you want to give me more, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine too. And I've found in my life, the more junk I get, the more i got to worry about it. You know, there's a certain... You know, there's, there's a certain burden of having stuff and things. And again, you've got to insure it. You don't want to know what I spend on insurance every month. You know, so learn to be, learn to appreciate God's goodness. And God has been, folks, let's stop and think about it. If God took away everything we have, we still have heaven. You know what? That, that's infinitely above anything on this world. If God took away everything we have and we still have heaven, you know what? We're still way ahead. We're still way ahead of the game. We have no right to, um, in, in any way, um, look at God and say, you know, you've not been good enough to me. You've not given me enough. And by the way, that is the major error of the word faith, the prosperity gospel people out there who want to somehow turn Christianity into a greed machine. It is not. Be appreciative for what God has done. When I go to work, I'm thankful that I have a car to drive. You know, I think I say, you know, I've often said, thank you for my truck, thank you for my car, thank you for my home, for the ability to go to work, the ability to have a mind that can think that I can work, yes. and a job, and the ability to go there, and I'm not out digging ditches somewhere. And, and when you start looking at that, when these little nits come along in life, it don't bother you nearly as much. Because you're focused on what God has done and not what he hasn't done. If we focus on what God hasn't done, we're a pathetic crowd. Think about what it would be to have kids and no matter what you give that kid, he's never satisfied. He's never happy. He wants something more. After a while, you just you want to slap him into the next time zone, right? Well, think about that. Think about what God, no matter what God does for us, it's not enough. We, we want more. We want more. Let's be thankful for what God has given us. He is good. God is good, folks. The fact that we're sitting here today and not in hell, God is good. God is gracious beyond belief. God's mercy. What's God's mercy? God's mercy is His, his uh, pity towards those who are in distress. The misery, the distress. What did Christ exhibit when, when the sick people came to Him? Mercy. Mercy on them. 
because of their pitiable condition. It's God looking down and seeing our pitiable condition. A great example of this is, is in the book, I think it's in the book of Isaiah, if, I'm not, if I remember right, where it talks about someone walking through the desert and seeing a baby in the afterbirth, squirming in its afterbirth, abandoned in the desert. And it's a picture of God in Israel. And God says, I, I took you out of your, your, your afterbirth and I cleaned you up and I fed you and I gave you clothes and I, I, I gave you a home and I took care of you. And then what happened to Israel? What did they do? They ran off into idolatry. But God is showing his, his mercy towards those who are in a pitiable condition. When he walked by and saw the blind man, he had pity. He had mercy. He had compassion. And God is the source of all true compassion. And because God is merciful, God wanted a solution to our sin problem, right? We're sinners. We deserve hell. We deserve eternal separation from God. Well, how in the world can God reverse that? His mercy and His grace drove Him to a solution by sending Christ to take our place, to pay the penalty that I deserve. When Christ hung on that cross, He was taking my sin on Him. He did not become, in essence, sin, but He took it upon Himself and He bore the full weight of God's wrath against me. And why did He do that? Because He had mercy on me. He looked at me and saw my pitiable condition. And he was moved with compassion. And it's interesting, someone said, you know, when Christ came to the world, he could have done a lot of things to prove his divinity, right? He could have flown like Superman, right? He could have done that. He could have leapt tall buildings in a single bound. He could have done amazing feats of strength. But what did he do? What is the thing that marked Christ's ministry? Healing. In fact, someone said he essentially banished disease from Palestine for the duration of his ministry. And by the way, folks, under, we're going to get to this later on. These were organic diseases. This wasn't lower back pain that you hear these guys on TV healing. This was real stuff. Mark says there are people that came to him maimed. The word for maimed there is a word which means to miss a limb. Can you imagine going to Christ and having an arm put back on? Or a leg put back on? He put Malchus's ear back on, right? He raised Lazarus from the dead. He healed the woman with an issue of blood. These were organic healings, folks. This was not the psychosomatic stuff. This was real disease that he healed instantaneously. And why did he do that? Because he was showing his mercy and compassion. And what, was, what did the Pharisees want to do? Let's kill him. I like the, 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 the account in John with the man at the pool of Bethesda, remember, that was laying there and couldn't get up. And Christ came along and healed him, forgave his sins and healed him. And he told him, I want you to take up your bed and walk. So the guy took up his bed. Now the big problem with that, it was Sabbath. So all the religious muckety-mucks saw this guy carrying his bed. And of course they immediately freak out because you're not allowed to carry things on Sabbath. And I asked him, so what are you doing? So I don't know. Some guy came along and healed me and told me to pick up my bed and walk, so I did. And you know what the Pharisees' response was? Let's find out the one who caused him to pick up his bed and kill him because he's causing this man to violate the Sabbath. It never occurred to them, wait a minute, this guy was paralyzed for 40 years. What's going on here? Talk about swallowing, you know, swallowing, uh, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. They missed the whole point. Yeah. You can look at the lepers where they call out to Jesus to heal them. And he said, he said, you know, walk and go get checked by the rabbi mm -hmm. or whoever at the church. And by the time they would get there, they were healed. They were kind of living there. And only the one guy that was a Samaritan, I believe, turned around and came back. And then Jesus was healed. And I believe that, that in that account, that one, not only did he get physical healing, he got spiritual healing as well. But, you know, Christ healed everybody. He, you know, everybody that Christ healed is not in heaven today. Just because he healed them doesn't mean they automatically got a pass to go to heaven. But Christ had pity on them. Christ, and you see, folks, Christ pities our condition. And our problem is, we don't see sin as bad as it is. We do not see our sin as being as wicked and evil and cruddy as it is. We don't have a proper perspective of that. But Christ does. And he sees us in our pitiable, sinful, lost condition. And it's his mercy that moves him to compassion, to do something about it. But this, there's a warning at the end. 
God's mercy doesn't last forever. In the case of every person who rejects Christ, there comes a day when God gives them a final call. You know, they could live another 50 years. You know that, right? They could live another 50 years. But God calls out to the sinner. But someday, the age of grace, the age of mercy, the time of mercy is over. Remember what happened back in Noah's day, right? Noah preached for 120 years. How'd you like to do that? A 120-year ministry with no converts. That's sort of a bummer, isn't it? But what happened at the end of the 20, 120 years? God shut the door. And now you had the converts, but you know what? It's too late. God shut the door. There comes a day, folks, when God's mercy and God's grace ends. And all you have to look forward to is God's judgment. But for God, by God's grace, for whatever reason, He showed me, Alan Schaefer, He showed me mercy. And I get to be a, an object of His mercy. A vessel of mercy and not a vessel of wrath, as it says in Romans 9. God's mercy, as you've already said, is the reason for uh, the, the atoning work of Christ. Because prior to that, the only means by which humans could, could give allegiance to God was through the law, and the law, which started with the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, it evolved into, by the work of the rabbis and, and such, revolved into 613 laws, and it was just an ever-frustrating, ever-not-ending cycle of trying to follow those laws and God's mercy, knowing that it was just impossible to follow those laws, which is why the uh, Pharisees got bit out of shape about the healing on the law day and all that stuff. They were trying hard in their limited understanding to do what God said to do. Don't do X, Y, and Z on the Sabbath. Well, God actually said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But, okay, now, evolving out of that commandment, let alone the other nine, came a whole bunch of laws and how I can remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And when people try, as in, don't heal on the Sabbath, and so this guy from Galilee who just did should be punished because he broke God's law, and so it, it's just one big long frustration. So God's mercy, at in the fullness of time, said, "Okay, I'll straighten that problem out." Because true, the the most devout person trying to follow those laws just fails. So Jesus will bring in, will usher in grace, thus eliminating the frustration if you truly accept Jesus. And, and therefore, that totally means a changed heart in life, as opposed to what you were also talking about earlier, this free grace thing where people think, well, you know, if, if I know him as Savior, I can live like hell. Yeah. One of the, the reason the law is important, by the way, we've got to remember that the law is good, right? Paul said yeah, it was. The law is good, right? But what does the law do? It shows you just how bad you really are. <laughs> All right? That's the purpose. And the purpose of the law is to bring us to the point where we just stand before God and say, you know what? If you don't do something, I am doomed because I can't do this. And God would say, you got the point now. Because the point was never keeping the law. The point was coming to me in grace. And by the way, we talk about God's grace. God's grace is the basis for our salvation from the first day of human history to the end. It was never by works. Never, ever intended by works. Now, that's what the Pharisees made it into. But it was never intended to be that. And again, the Decalogue is a, is a codification of God's love. If I love God, I'm not going to have another God before Him. If I love God, I'm not going to worship Him in a bad manner, make images. If I love God, I'm going to keep a Sabbath day because I want to spend time with God. I want to spend time with Him. If I love God, I'm not going to presume on his name and character by taking it in vain. And by the way, if I love God, I love what God loves, which means I'm going to love my neighbor 
as myself. And I'm not going to steal, and I'm not going to covet, and I'm not going to murder them. You know, it's all a codification of love. And, and that's what the Pharisees missed. And it's interesting because when Christ asked the lawyer, what is the greatest commandment? The lawyer said, to, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second, love thy neighbors thyself. And Christ says, you know, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven because you've got the point. The point was never rules. The point is a relationship. But God had to bring the rules in to show us just how bad and how far short we have fallen so that we could come to him in his grace. That's why he brought the law in there. And you need, when you, when you proclaim the gospel, when you share the witness to people, don't ever leave out the law of God. They need to realize that they are under divine judgment because of their sin. Don't forget that piece. Because if you forget that piece, there's no need for the Savior piece. Right? Yes, sir. Yeah. And you need to meditate on that. And, and, and especially this Easter season, just one of my big bugaboos in this Easter season is that so often we concentrate on the physical torment of the cross. Listen, that was not what freaked Christ out in the garden. It had nothing to do with the physical pain and torment. You know what caused him the great distress? He is going to have his father for the first time in eternity turn his back on him. And that's what caused him the great distress and the great drops of blood. It had nothing to do with the physical. I mean, that's over in six hours. That's done with. But here's someone who for an eternity past stood face to face, on the Greek says, face to face with the Father in the fullness and the wonder and the, 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 just the, the richness of that relationship. For three hours, God, his Father, is going to turn his back on him as though he committed the sin of every human being that ever lived. And that was the distress that Christ shrunk back in horror from. It has nothing to do with the physical torment. It has to do with the separation from God. And by the way, we will not understand that until we get to glory and we're experiencing God's presence and we're experiencing that face-to-face communion with God. We will not, even then, we will not fully comprehend what it will be like to have God turn his back on us and treat us as though we committed the sin of every human being that ever lived. That was the horror of the cross. The horror of the cross is not hanging on there with nails in your hands. That's bad, but that's not the horror of the cross to Christ. It was a separation from God that, that, that just... And, and by the way, we'll understand this. Whatever Christ suffered on the cross was equivalent to the hell that all of us would have suffered for an eternity in the lake of fire. That's the love that Christ gave us. Now, how in the world can you presume on that and say, well, I'm forgiven. It doesn't matter how I live. I'm going to go and have a good time. You can't. If you understand, if you, get, if you even get an inkling of that love, it's going to alter your entire worldview. It's going to alter the way you view life. Yes. Just a little bit. Um, I just wanted to uh, share something. Can any of you relate really in the depths of what uh, Alan is sharing? It's almost brought to mind when he's talking about how God had to turn his back on something because of our sin. And, and I can share with you guys over 20 years ago, even before I went to Bible college, I had that experience. I came to the Lord and made my Savior when I was a kid here at this church. And for seven or eight years, I didn't live for him. I didn't make him my Lord of my life. And when I came back to him, like Alan said, I sensed, I turned my back on him. So when he's connecting for us right now, you know, it was that time that I fell to my knees and wept because I was making the Lord of my life and I turned my back on God. And then for him to just make that connection for us, have you guys, have we all experienced that really? Where we sense that we've lost this time 
through our journey when we thought we knew him, but then when we really did come to know him. And then we were the ones that separated ourselves and turned ourselves. So anyway, it's just a thought for us on our own journey with him and turning ourselves away from him. And it's God's grace, folks. It's God's grace that caused him to send his son to take our place. Because there, listen, understand this. There was no other way. If Christ, if God could have redeemed us some other way, what would he have done? You bet it. This was the way. This was the only way. Because what did God have to do? God had to shatter our selfishness. He had to shatter our rebellion against him. And what better way to do that than to give the greatest sacrifice imaginable. The greatest sacrifice God could have ever given is his own life for us, his enemies. And Christ, by the way, he did not say, oh, do I really have to do that, Father? No, he did it joyfully, willingly. He said, I come to do not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I came to willingly take that role upon myself. And when he came to the garden and he saw the cross before him and he knew that his father was going to turn his back on him, he sweat great drops of blood. That was the horror of the cross. And that's what he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the way, you know, that's the first time he called him God. Prior to that, what did he call him? Father. God turned his back on his son. Why? To redeem us. He loved us. His grace compelled him to do that. And God's grace is his unmerited favor. Grace is not something you earn. Paul says that. You're saved by grace or works, folks. One or the other. You're not saved by a combination. Because once you bring in the least little work, then it's by works. You can't be saved by works. There's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. All you can do is stand before God and say, I am guilty. I am undone. Please forgive me. And God says, I will. Because you can't earn it. Grace is not something you can earn. Grace is not merited. Grace is not earned. Grace is not deserved. And we understand, none of us deserve grace. <laughs> none of us deserve eternal life. None of us deserve the time of day from God. But it's His grace that compelled Him to send His Son. And it's grace that has saved me. And it's grace that will take me home. It's God's grace. And it doesn't matter what t- period of time of human history. Noah found what? Grace in the eyes of the Lord. Did Noah deserve to be delivered? Nope. But he found grace. Why? I don't know. God showed him grace. And God acts graciously because he is gracious, but his grace is connected with his justice as well. And again, all the attributes are in perfect balance. Notice this. Grace is unmerited. We get, you got to get this point, folks. There's nothing in you that makes God like you in and of yourself. God did not look down time and say, oh, Alan, he's such a wonderful guy. I think I'll have him. He's better than that other guy. I like him better. That's not the way the Bible presents it. That's not, that's not, that's, that concept is foreign to Scripture. What Scripture says is that we are all together unprofitable. We are all together like filthy rags. We're all together condemned under God's judgment. There's nothing innately within Alan Schaefer that makes God love me more than he loves somebody else. It's all of God's grace. Because from God's infinite perfection, we're all infinitely bad. Now, we like to look around and say, you know, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. Look, you know, that's one piece of coal calling another piece of coal not quite as black. They're both black. We start comparing ourselves with other people. You can win on that one because you can always find somebody worse than you are. But God sees all of us as pitiable, miserable, lost in sin. And it's his grace that compelled him to send his son to take our place. And it's his grace that has been evidenced in our lives as we come to him. And it's grace that, by the way, keeps us. And it's going to be grace that leads us home.
think that our truth understanding is so you really lament and understand when God's not there. And I had a time in my life I remember, I can clearly as day remember, it was one time in my entire life I felt He was not there. The fear, the anguish, the sorrow, the pain, the destruction, everything at one time bashed me into a million pieces. But what's funny is I can still look at it back now. Though I felt he wasn't there, and though I tried to deserve it only, he was still there helping me, and that showed me the true grace. And his faithfulness. He won't let you down. Grace is unearned. Grace is unmerited, first of all. Grace is unearned. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to buy it. It's unpayable. You can't pay it back. Why do I want to do things to please God? Because I love Him. Not because I'm going to pay Him back a debt. If Bill Gates walked in here and gave me a billion dollars, how can I pay that back? You can't. You can't. How, 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 you couldn't. You can't pay God back. That's not the essence of a gift. It's, it's appreciation and love for the gift. It's unending and eternal. It doesn't stop. God's grace does not come to an end in my case. Why? Because He has saved me, He has redeemed me, and He's not going to fail me. His grace is going to take me all the way through to the glorification that I'm going to have in eternity future. Theologically, and we'll argue this later, God's grace is irresistible. Those whom God has foreknown, He will bring to Himself. And by the way, He's going to bring you because you want to come, but He's going to draw you. Anybody in here... Hopefully you're all Christians. Did anybody here become a Christian and really not want to be one? Of course not. Why did you become a Christian? You wanted it. Why did you want it? Because God drew you. God drew you Himself. God's love drew you to Himself. And by the way, you couldn't resist that love. When you saw just how wondrous God's love is, you came to that, didn't you? You can't resist it. You can't thwart God's grace. Now, theologically, we're going to talk about this in the whole predestination and election thing that's going to be coming up in a later class. But in our case, when I look at my life, I look, folks, God drew me to himself, but I wanted to come. And why did I want to come? Because he loved me first. I loved him because he loved me first. He drew me to himself. And by the way, when I became a Christian, it's not like, no, I don't want to go to heaven. God says, you're coming whether you like it or not. No. I wanted to come. I wanted to believe. I wanted Him. I wanted forgiveness of my sin. And it's unfathomable. You know, we'll never figure this out, folks. We're going to sit around eternity for billions and trillions and quadrillions of years. Eons of time. And we will never get to the bottom of God's grace. There's going to be a wonder and an awe that we're going to have in heaven for eternity. Trying to fathom this. And we're never going to get to it. That's the wonder of God. God's love is persistent. It doesn't give up. I've got to hurry just a little bit because I've got to get through the attributes. God's love is persistent. He, he, he tracks us down. Think about that. God, if God loves, you can't get away from God's love, right? And even when you live in rebellion, what is God doing? He is pursuing you, right? He's going to keep at it. He's going to draw you to himself. And if you're in disobedience, he's going to bring chastening in. But God's love will never fail. God's love will never let us down. God will never get to the point where he says, you know what? I know I saved you, but you're more bothered than you're worth. I'm just going to forget about it. It's just not going to get there. I think this is, yeah. This is the last one of God's attributes we need to talk about. God's wrath. God's wrath is an attribute. It's part of his nature. It's an, it's an intrinsic attribute of himself. And what is God's wrath? God's wrath is his automatic response to sin. God does not have to work it up. It's automatic. When you see sin in God's presence, you see God's wrath exhibited against that sin. Romans chapter 118 talks about how God's wrath is revealed from heaven against sin and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth or suppress it in unrighteousness. God's wrath is constantly being revealed. And theologically what this means is that we look around in our world and it comes back to an earlier question. Why is there sin? Why is there suffering? Why is there disease? That is an outworking of God's wrath against sin. And God's wrath is constantly being revealed against sin 
and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth. Do men suppress the truth about God? Sure, take any science class in college. Of course, they suppress the truth about God. They don't want to talk about God. You can't believe in God. Now, you can believe anything else, but just not that. And every time some evidence comes up for God, they want to suppress that. You know, you can stand up in college class and say anything you want. Just don't say you're a creationist. You'll be laughed out of the class. What do you mean? You know, everybody knows we're more than... Humans have been here for billions of years. Everybody knows you descended from a monkey. Everybody knows you came from a pile of ooze in a pond somewhere five billion years ago. Everybody knows that. Well, no, not everybody does. The lost men do that. Why? Because they don't want to believe that there's a God out there that they're accountable to. They've got to come up with something else. And quite honestly, until, until Darwin came along, everybody believed in God. It's only when Darwin came along that we could finally get rid of God. And by the way, there's this movement going on, this new atheism. It's dangerous. Because what new atheism says is that not only are Christians um, wrong, but they're dangerous. They're evil. Christianity is an evil thing. And they're, they're, this is being promoted by the highbrows, by the, the intellectual elites. We're dangerous. We're a danger to the advancement of humanity because we actually believe in sin. We need to suppress these guys. It comes from the Greek word thumos. You want to think of thumos, think of taking a gallon of gasoline and throwing it on a fire. What do you get? Poof. That's God's wrath. God's wrath is, God's wrath someday is going to explode, folks. It's being held down now because of His grace, but someday that wrath is going to be fully revealed. And the greatest expression of that is an eternity in the lake of fire for those who refuse salvation. It will be finally revealed there. God does not have to work this up. There are two components. There's a temporal component, right? Where you see disease, evil, sin, death. That's God's outworking of wrath. But there's also an eternal component, the lake of fire. And that's going to be experienced by all of those who refuse yeah. salvation. So folks taking notes, uh, the lake of fire reference, I would imagine the best reference is Revelation, Revelation 20. 20 and that's the eternal state. Hell is not the eternal state. The lake of fire is the eternal state. Hell is a temporary place. Lake of fire is eternal. Now, at the end of this, before we um, adjourn, understand all of God's attributes are in perfect balance with one another. And the reason for the cross, folks, is this is the only way in which God's wrath against sin, God's justice against the sinner, God's mercy towards the sinner, God's grace towards us, God's love of us, that comes together in the cross. That's where all of these attributes come together in the cross. Why is it that I am a recipient of God's grace? Because somebody was a recipient of his wrath for me. That was Christ. That's the only way, folks, I get forgiveness is Christ took the penalty. Christ paid the penalty for me. Now, how can you not love a Savior like that? How can you not appreciate a Savior like that? You, you can't. And so when you look at these attributes of God, understand that all of His character, all of it, comes, all of it almost coalesces and, and, and sort of focuses in on that cross. That's where God's justice kissed His love, someone said. God is just. How is God just? In my case, God's just in my case because my sin was paid for. Somebody took the penalty. So God's justice is satisfied. How is God's wrath satisfied? Somebody took the wrath that I should have gotten. Who did that? Christ took my wrath. He paid the penalty. And because of that, God can exhibit love for me, the love that Christ has. He has for Christ. You know, God loves you as much as he loves Christ. Go figure that one out. Folks, you need to think about these things and ponder them. And you know what? You'll, you'll spend a lifetime pondering these things and all you're going to do is grow in a deeper wonder and love and appreciation for God and who He is. That's all you're going to get. And even then, you're not going to hit the bottom of this well. It's going to, it goes deep. You may be able to go deeper, but there's, a, there's an, an infinity to here that you'll never get. Let's appreciate God's love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And, and, and hopefully this will just be a launching point for your own study in the attributes of God. 
Well, next week, not next week, next week we're off. The week after, we're going to talk about the transcendence and eminence of God. Dan's going to do the class and talk about how God is not only transcendent, in other words, he's beyond creation, but he is eminent in the sense that he is intimately involved with us. And both of those concepts are there. All right, um, we're out of time. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that um, you've given us your word. We thank you that you revealed yourself in your word. We thank you that you have exhibited grace towards us. And Father, I pray that all of us in this season of the year, as Easter comes up, would uh, stop and meditate and think deeply on the price that was paid for us. That uh, we would meditate on the horror of the cross in a sense that for the first time in eternity, if there was any kind of division or split in the Trinity, it was there as you turned your back on Christ, your Son, as he took upon him the full weight of sin. Every sin that was ever committed by every human being, he bore. Father, we, 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 we can't understand that. We can, we can look at it, but we can't fully comprehend it. But I pray that we would ponder it. And that we respond out of love for what you've done for us by loving you in return. That's all we can do, is to love you. And to desire to do those things that honor you, that please you, because we love you. And we thank you so much for this time, for this church, for your word, your teaching, in Christ's name. Amen.